Hey, what's up? And thanks for listening to the Aaron J. Dodson podcast. I'm Aaron, the host, and hope that you are doing well. Psalm 119, verse 34, best describes this podcast. The psalmist wrote in the long ago, Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. This is the podcast where I discuss the sacred text, and I do my best to help myself and others understand it so that we might keep God's law and that we might observe it with our whole hearts. It's been a long, hot minute since I have covered anything from the book of Matthew. But some time back, I started going through the book of Matthew with this in mind, that Matthew is the gospel account written by a Jew to Jews about a Jew, and that Matthew is the writer, and his Jewish countrymen were the original readers, and Jesus Christ is the subject, that it was Matthew's design to present Jesus as the king of the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah. And the way Matthew does this is through a carefully selected series of Old Testament quotations. He documents Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. His genealogy, baptism, messages, and his miracles all point to the same inescapable conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth is king. And even in Jesus' death, which, which seemingly appeared to be defeat, was turned to victory by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the message again echoes, the king of the Jews lives. And with that in mind, just as a, as a reminder or a brief review, I want to pick up in Matthew chapter 5 where I last left off. In the last episode on the gospel according to Matthew, we considered together the Beatitudes and how the Beatitudes were very uh, pointed, straightforward, and needed for people in that time, as it is today. And I wanted to build off of that and hit highlights of the Sermon on the Mount. I won't read every verse, but I will highlight some what I think to be points that will be useful as a summary of this you know, great sermon of Jesus Christ. I think what the Beatitudes do is they, they, they pointed people then to the kingdom of God and to the kingship of Christ. And, and, and they were spoken to people, a group of people who were anxiously awaiting Messiah and who were in the, the throngs of, of not only spiritual bankruptcy because that was their greatest need but they were materially and and in a civil way they were wanting hoping and expecting messiah to overthrow the rule of the roman government and so they were a people who many of them who were empty of self that is they were they were low mentally and spiritually. They were mourning over their social and economic governmental situation. They were without strength because they were being made weak by the Roman oppression. 
they were hungry and thirsty for a domination or a re- over Rome or a release from the domination of Rome. They were people who were not merciful toward the Romans, who many of them mistreated them. They had become double-minded and not single-minded. They were wanting a material and earthly kingdom like Saul, David, Solomon of times past. They were not teaching the message to the nations around them as they should have been. And so when you go down the list of the Beatitudes, you can see where Jesus was emphasizing that they needed to be uh, poor in spirit. Well, many of them were. They just needed to understand how that applied to them spiritually. They needed to be those who did not think they had all the answers, that they were empty of self. They were spiritually bankrupt and in need of God and God's things. They need to be people who mourned not not because of their physical status in Judea and in the Roman Empire, but over their own sins so they could be comforted. That's why Jesus would say things like, you know, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Those that are well don't need a doctor, but those that are sick do. They need to be strong, but they need to have their strength under the control of God, meekness. And they need to be a people who hungered for being right with God more than hungering a certain position in an earthly kingdom or over the domination of Rome. They need to be people who were merciful, even to their enemies. And Jesus speaks of loving your enemies even in this same sermon. They needed to seek mercy so that they might obtain mercy and be merciful to others so that they would have mercy themselves. Be pure in heart, single-minded, so that they would see God. They would understand and have a proper relationship with God and one day see Him in heaven, no doubt. And be peacemakers by teaching the message that needed to be taught, the message about God's greatness and goodness and ultimately His salvation through Messiah. And they needed to be taught ahead of time that they would be persecuted if they listened to the King of Kings, but they were blessed if they were persecuted. And so I think the Beatitudes point to even the Great Commission and the day of Pentecost when the church would officially begin and the gospel in its fullness would be taught for the first time. Uh, I think the Beatitudes are, are like pointers of the gospel because they are the very heart and soul of the good news. And also they are pointers of and for Pentecost and the church of Jesus Christ for which Jesus died. So as we look into this next part, verses 13 to 16, about the salt of the earth and the light of the world, you think in that time about how they would be perceived as a low, little, nobody nation. But yet as God's people, they had influence. And in order for that influence to exert itself, it had to come into contact with, uh, you know, God and with God's things and with the people of the world so that they could preserve and teach and illuminate the truth to others. And apparently they were not doing that. And Isaiah had spoken about him how they need to be the light 
of the world uh, to the nations around them. But Jesus reminds them, you're the light of the world. And, and you're a city that's set on a hill so you can't be hidden. People are looking at you. They're watching you. You profess to be Jehovah's people. And then Jesus speaks on uh, revelation and the standard of God's word and how he didn't come to destroy uh, the law, the prophets, and set, instead he came to fill full. And the idea is that Jesus filled full the Mosaic Code, its demands, its prophecies, its promises, and all that uh, goes with it. Jesus did not throw down the old law, but instead brought it to completion, Romans 10.4. And, and then he, he goes into what we often call correcting their wrong thinking. That they had been so influenced by the scribes and the Pharisees and others. They had heard various things, and they had heard the law mistaught. Jesus then, instead of quoting sources or even the Old Testament, he, he emphasizes that he is the standard of authority. He says, you have heard this, but I say to you. And that was groundbreaking because that was saying that he was the authority and that he, uh, as the Son of Man, the Son of God, was speaking not only on behalf of God, but as God. And he spoke on important subjects like the sanctity of life, verses 21 to 27, the sanctity of marriage, verses 27 to 32. And in that section, one of the first verses I want to highlight, really, is that when Jesus says, you know, that whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So the righteousness here that Jesus speaks of is obviously the passport into the kingdom. It's a necessary condition to entering God's reign, his authority. And obviously, it has no reference to the subject of giving or tithing or things like that. It has to do with their heart. There being a people who hears God's word who loves God's word, who obeys God's word. And that would include the things that Jesus speaks of here regarding the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, and even uh, the way we speak and word and conversate and treat others, verses 33 to 37, and how we're not to be a people who retaliate against others, verse 38 to 48. People see that in the way that we live. And so you can, you can see that the righteousness of which Jesus speaks is, is thinking right and doing right. It's not merely uh, doing right on the outside. It starts on the inside. The heart must be humbled, penitent, tender, and have faith toward Christ, and then it acts. That's what faith is. It's the action that we take based on what we believe. And with that in mind, I think a key verse of the Sermon on the Mount is verse 20 that their righteousness must not be like the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees who had ill motives, chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. They did their charitable deeds. They did their religion. They practiced their acts. Even when they would practice on the outside what was right, the inside was wrong. It was corrupt. And you read that in Matthew 23. And so they had to have the right heart. Their righteousness had to exceed 
the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, or they would not enter heaven. And the same concept is true of us today. And continuing in this, you know, they were to love their neighbor. They had heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's a, a glaring omission and a glaring addition. They were not to hate their enemy. They were to love their enemy. Jesus says that. I say to you, love your enemies. And wow, that would have meant that would have meant a lot to them in that time. In that context, when the Roman people, the Roman government, the civil leaders as a whole, they are oppressing the people of Canaan, the Bible lands, what, what we now call Palestine, the people of Judea and Jerusalem. They're taxing them like crazy. They, they are, you know, they're hurting God's people in multiple ways. They make their life very difficult. That's why you read things like, you know, if you're compelled to go a mile, go with them too, verse 40. If you're slapped, turn the other cheek, verse 39. Uh, verse 41 is the one about the if you're compelled to go one mile. Well, they, they could have been compelled, you know, by a Roman official to do such. He's, Jesus says, go with them too. You know, what we say, going the extra mile. Giving to someone who wants to borrow. Don't turn away from that individual, but help them. All these kinds of things, when you put it in its context, is significant. They were to love their enemies. And it was it was it was often that they were running into individuals that were seemingly their enemies. He says, Love them, bless them, do good to them, pray for them, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And in doing so, not having the love of the world, but the love of the Father, they would be perfect. And I think that's the next key verse that I want to highlight. The idea of verse 47 is being like your father. To be perfect doesn't mean to be sinlessly perfect. I don't believe that, that Christ is commanding his people to be sinlessly perfect because that would be commanding us to do something that is not possible. But he is commanding us to be like our father in heaven, which will bring us away from a life of sin to a life of holiness and godliness. And we won't practice sin. Instead, we'll practice godliness and righteousness. If you love your enemies, if you do good to those who do you wrong, if you only greet your brethren, that doesn't do you any good. That doesn't glorify God. But if you greet those that don't greet you, if you are good to those that are bad to you, you'll be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. And it's not so the love here, the describes, that's a highlight of this sermon is not merely a feeling it's an action and we take it because messiah taught us to do it we're to have love the kind of love that loves enemies like god does and i tell you folks when we pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us and we bless those that curse us and we do good to them, it changes things. It changes us. And it can change them. It can provide the greatest doors of opportunity, the likes of which we've probably never seen. 
And this reminds me of Romans 12, 14. uh, Jesus through Paul said, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And then later he wrote that we are to live peaceably with all people as much as depends on us and don't avenge ourselves, etc. To not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That by doing good to those who are enemies, by feeding them, giving them a drink, we will heap coals of fire on their head. We can change the situation. And so I think this is a highlight verse. Chapter 5, verse 20. The right kind of righteousness, as opposed to the kind that was often exhibited by their leaders in that time. And also being perfect like the Father in heaven is perfect. Obviously, they struggle with this, and I think we do too as well. Instead of treating people in the world that are seemingly our enemies because they're opposed to God and His things, we need to love them and give them opportunities to hear God's Word. The next key verse that I want to highlight will be chapter 6, verse 33. So before we get to that, let me build up to it. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, again, he talks about motives. And specifically, he gets into prayer. I haven't hit that yet. In verses uh, 8 through 15, basically, he gives the the basics of prayer. How prayer is about relationship, our Father in heaven. It's about reverence, hallowed be your name. It's about a realization of God's authority, your kingdom come, your will be done. And it's about a reliance upon him. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And please don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us. That's reliance. Yours is the kingdom and power. That's respect. Those are the basics of prayer. Relationship, reverence, realization, reliance, and respect. And as a result, we can enjoy forgiveness. When we have the right attitude toward God in prayer and toward others when we pray, we can enjoy forgiveness when we extend forgiveness to others. And again, he talks about motives. You know, don't don't fast and 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 these kinds of things. Don't practice your righteousness. Remember, he's speaking to Jews. Don't practice your your religion to be seen by people. You you do it for the honor and glory of God because you love God. He speaks about material goods in verses 19 to 23, how we're not to to store up treasures on earth, instead store up treasures in heaven. And he speaks of uh, anxiety and serving two masters, uh, the master of mammon, money, and the master of anxiety, you know, uh, worrying about things that we shouldn't because we're God's people. We're not we're not people of the world. The people of the world verse 32, they worry about these things. But we need to know that God will take care of us because God takes care of the birds, he takes care uh, of the lilies, he takes care of the grass of the field. Will he not take care of us? Oh, we of little faith, right? And so he gives us the prescription for worry. And that is to totally trust God. And here's how you do it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. And so so he he gives us an object to seek. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. An order in which we're to do it first. And he, and, he, and the obligation is to seek it, to seek the reign and authority of God and God's 
righteousness. And then there is a blessing that will come as a result. He says all these things, and he speaks of food and clothing in this context, it will be added to you. You will be provided these things that you need. Instead of being anxious and worrying, instead of splitting up your heart and your mind and your life and serving two masters, trying to fulfill these physical needs, do what God says first, and he'll provide for you. He'll do what he'll, he'll do what he promises that he'll do. So as an added attraction, he'll provide for you. And I think that's a highlight of this because people at that time, like today, were concerned about their daily needs, their daily concerns, their daily cares, food, clothes, shelter, etc. And Jesus says, look, that's what people of the world worry about. I want you to be occupied with the things of God. And we need that lesson today. So many today are seeking food, clothes, clothing and shelter, sports, entertainment, education, and leisure and other things. And instead, we need to be seeking first the authority of God to live by His will. And when we obey the authority of God, we're added to His kingdom That is, we're called out of the world and we're added to the church. That's what the church is. They're called out of the world. They're called out of the world and they're called to assemble to worship God and serve God. And so, we're to seek first, they were and we are, to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And God will provide for our needs. The next verse I want to highlight is verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 12. Jesus continues, in things about attitude, about judging, using the proper standard of judgment. And he also speaks about being diligent to seek God in prayer and in life, you know, asking and it will be given and seeking and, and, and we will find and knocking and it will be opened and these types of important things. He builds up by saying that if, if, if human parents who are evil, know how to give good gifts to their children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Well, He will. And so He makes this statement. Therefore, based upon these truths, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So Jesus speaks here on the decisions that we make. We must make our decisions based on God and and what others need. They need for us to do them right, to do them as God would have us to do them, so that, again, we will not put our light under a basket, as Jesus had already said in Matthew chapter 5. And no doubt the Israelites were doing that. They were hiding their light, their lamp, under a basket. They were not letting it shine that others may see. They had, many of them, a faith that was practicing what they believed for the wrong reason, for the glory of others. They had heard all kind of things that were not true, and it was corrupting the life itself, the sanctity of life, and and the sanctity of marriage, and even their religion that had turned so ritualistic. And Jesus had told them, you know, ritualism in religion, apart from a proper relationship with God and others, 
is vain. That's why he would say, you know, if you remember when you're worshiping God, if you remember your gift, if you excuse me, if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's practicing true righteousness, chapter 5, verse 20. And loving them, loving your neighbor, even your enemy, that's being perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And practicing your faith because you want to please God, not for the praise of men. You want to be rewarded by your Father in heaven. Proper motives. Lay up for yourselves treasures on, not on earth, but in heaven, on heaven, I say, in heaven. Don't be double-minded and anxious. Give your all to God by seeking first the kingdom. Again, that's the highlight verse. And with that in mind, don't be judgmental. Use careful judgment. Don't be hypocritical in your judgment. Use wise discernment. Don't give what's holy to the dogs. Seek God properly. And if your parents on earth know how to give good gifts to your children and, they're, and, and, and you're subject to sin, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And since our Father in heaven gives us good things, whatever we want people to do to us, we should do to them. And that's a wise question to ask. Number one, is this right in the sight of God, according to his word? Number two, how would I want to be treated? Would I want them to say this to me? Would I want them to treat me the way that I'm about to treat them or I have treated them? We call it the golden rule. And what that does, the golden rule, is it shapes the way we make decisions. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. And Jesus warns because that gate is narrow. Watch out for false teachers. And you can know who they are by their fruit. Again, by their fruit, he said, you're going to know them. Because a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And he says, bottom line, I'm getting to the last key verse, verse 24 to 27, bottom line, Jesus says, we must obey God. We must obey our Father in heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So loving obedience is described by Christ as more excellent and even greater then professed miracles, verse 22. Loving, disobe excuse me, loving obedience will not disappoint a person on the final day. Because Jesus says at that day, there are going to be people who did not lovingly obey me. They practiced many good things, but they did not lovingly obey me. And so they're not going to be prepared and so Jesus says, look, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him, I'll compare him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, 
And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. And that's the people that we want to be, wise individuals, wise men and women, wise girls and boys, not foolish. Who is it that's foolish? The man that makes not a lot of money? The man who lives in a small house? No. The black man, the white man, the... the no. The, the person whose parents are faithful or the per No. This is an individual thing. It's not based on who your parents are or what your parents didn't do, where you live or what nationality you are. It's based on how you hear the words of Jesus Christ, what you do with them. The foolish person is the one who hears what Jesus says but doesn't do them. It's like a foolish man that built his house on the sand. And that's a foolish and stupid thing to do. Because when the rain comes down and the floods happen, the winds will beat and blow on the house and it's going to fall. And when it falls, it's going to be big. It's going to be a great fall. And the same is true today. When we listen to Jesus, and particularly for this episode as I sum up the Sermon on the Mount, the words of this great and awesome sermon, Jesus cuts to the heart. And I think, again, what this sermon does is it shows us the right attitudes we're to have, beatitudes, and it teaches us the proper way to be right with God. Righteousness, chapter 5, verse 20. And it points to being, to being like the Father in heaven, chapter 5, verse 48. And it emphasizes that to do that, we must make God and his things our top priority. Chapter 6, verse 33. Not secondary, but primary. And when we do that, we will consider that God gives good gifts, and so we ought to treat others the way God treats them. We ought to treat others the way we would want to be treated because that's what the law and the prophets were about how we love God, and how we treat our neighbor. I think the old covenant can be summed up with Jesus stating the two greatest commands were to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments of the Old Testament, as tedious as they may seem, point back to these two great truths. All the laws of the old covenant are summarized in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And again, Key verse at the end, Jesus says, if you hear what I'm saying and you do what I'm saying, you are a wise person. You have a firm foundation. You are prepared for the judgment. You are prepared for life and the next life. If you hear what I'm saying and you don't do it, you are a fool. And when someone says that, they are either a fool or they are the wisest person, the greatest person, the person with all authority. That would be King Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God himself. Of course, Jesus was not foolish. He was and is the greatest and the wisest of all the ages, the very Son of God. You see, when Jesus had ended these sayings in this sermon, the people were, they were struck with awe at his teaching. And the reason why is he taught them as one having authority. He said, I say to you, I say to you, I'm telling you, 
I say, if you hear what I say and you do it, you'll be a wise person. If you don't do what I say, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, that one will enter. You see, Jesus didn't quote sources. He said, I am the source. The scribes taught quoting their sources, their rabbinical teachers. Jesus said, I say to you, if you hear what I say and you do it, you'll be wise, you'll be prepared. If you obey the will of the Father, you will enter in. And I'm going to end with that. I hope something I've said in this, in these highlight verses of this great sermon, has, has, has enlightened you, has encouraged you, has blessed you in some way. And if you enjoyed this, please share this podcast. I'd really love to see those that follow my podcast and, and listen to it share these podcasts as often as you're able. God bless, and I will catch you next time.